Today's episode is sponsored by Missing Link Studios. Missing Link is a social impact storytelling and analytics agency made up of human-centered, data-driven media makers who create compelling stories and content through podcasts, blogs, film, music, interactive web, research, and data journalism. Missing Link Studios works with businesses, community, and educational organizations, nonprofits, museums, and cultural institutions that want to spread public benefit through media. Through media production, data science, and design, Missing Link is your home base for hatching and launching new projects and services that share your good work and serve the world. Let Missing Link Studios tell your story. You can contact them at missinglink.studio. That's missinglink.studio. Now on with the show. One, two, three. Hi folks, welcome back to Experience by Design podcast, where we examine and explore experience designs of all kinds. I'm Gary David. First off, Happy New Year, everybody. It is 2020 or 2020 or whatever people are deciding to call the new year. It is also the year 4,718 in the Chinese calendar. I think that's right. Or the year 14,000 or 1,400. 14,000 would be a lot. 1,441 in the Islamic calendar. And I think it is the Mayan year 13.0.8.2.12. And if I got that wrong, I want to apologize to all of our Mayan listeners. And I apologize if I'm leaving your calendar out. I think we all want to make 2020 the year of diversity and inclusion, trying to combat some of the negative energy that seems to be emanating from 2019 around that topic. So a new year and new opportunities to be more inclusive. Hopefully things have not gotten off to a bad start in your 2020 or whatever year you're celebrating. But if they have, just look on the bright side. There's a lot of time left in the year to turn things around. It wasn't until recently that it clicked for me that we are not only in a new year, but we're also in a new decade. Growing up in the previous century, which oddly enough sounds weird to say, it seemed much easier to track the decades. You were either in the 50s or the 60s, 70s, 80s, etc. No one really talks about the 20s as the 20s in 1920. People had to add roaring in front of the 20s to make it sound somewhat respectable. I don't hear many people saying the 30s or the 40s. Decades as decades don't seem to get much traction until the 50s. So maybe once we get to 2050, we can start talking about decades like they mean something. That is, if we make it that long, not a foregone conclusion. The new year and the new decade means that we are officially now in the future. So I'm recording this from the past. You're now in the future. So I hope things are better now than they were then, or now when they are then, either way. And what better time to talk about the future than in the future? It at least seems like an appropriate time to talk about the future rather than talking about the future in the past or talking about the past in the future. Talking about the future in the future makes a lot of sense. Of course, any discussion of the future has to include a discussion of technology and how it is shaping our future. 
And this has been a long topic. I think probably back to when people first started making tools, making technology, there was this issue of how is this technology shaping and impacting our way of life? This makes for a perfect time to welcome our next guest to Experience by Design, Rick Britt of CallMiner. Rick probably has the best job title of all time. He is the Vice President of Artificial Intelligence. The path to Vice President of Artificial Intelligence would seem to be paved with engineering school or maybe computer science school. But as we will hear from Rick, the path to VP of AI is not predictably linear. It is a story that involves trading derivatives, call center management, and a new technology technological frontier, I should say, of sentiment analysis and speech analytics. One of the looming questions of any futuristic tale is whether that technology, whatever technology we're talking about, is making for a dystopian or utopian future. Whether we are going to be ruled by our new technological overlords or whether we are going to have a life of ease because of its existence. Or perhaps we might adopt a vision of the singularity which is a term put forward by inventor and futurist Ray Kurzweil. Without getting into a lot of details of what was intended by the singularity, and there's a really good, interesting movie out there on the singularity you can find, a major point for our purposes here is the diminished distance between human intelligence and artificial intelligence. And if we think of those two things as separate, as human intelligence having certain capacities and artificial intelligence having certain capacities and each having its own limitations, the singularity is that decreasing of distance until it all merges together, where the human and the machine are no longer distinguishable, or the human and technology are no longer distinguishable. And in some ways, we've already reached that point with some technologies. If you think, for instance, eyeglasses, I'm wearing some right now. We wouldn't consider eyeglasses to be a technology, even though it is. And we don't think of it as being separate from ourselves, really. It's seen as part of who we are in many respects. And we've seen this with prosthetics and other kinds of technology where the line between where the person ends and the technology begins does not always seem obvious. Enter CallMiner and their speech analytics solutions and sentiment analysis. Rick and I talk about how the technology factors into contemporary workplace, how it impacts how employees do their job, how they're trying to pave a road to richer interactions between contact center workers and customers, and how technology can be used as a determinant of action or an aid to facilitate action. And how that philosophy around which one it is can drive implementation, success, or downfall, as well as employee and customer experience. So Rick and I had a great conversation. It was wonderful catching up with them, and I hope you enjoy our chat. for me starting i'm just kind of curious um how you got how you i mean you're vice president of artificial intelligence which sounds terribly impressive i mean did you pick that title yourself or is this something that that there, there was a job posting for a vice president no not at all jeff jeff picked it um it does i, I think it's more fun when you say vp of ai because it sounds like you're playing playing wheel of fortune or something right um 
but you know, when I was taking the role, you know, we were kind of talking about it. We didn't know what the role would be. This role was created for me and based on what the company needed and what my history was. And Jeff Galino kind of came forward and said, you know, we like this title. It'll, it should get you what you need for sort of in an external sense. Cause part of my job is reassuring clients that the stuff we're doing is real. <laughs> so, so, and, and it is, and, and it turns out that that was a concern at the beginning, right? You always get worried about that at the beginning that it's like, you know, is what we're doing real? And now that we're actually really doing artificial intelligence, like it's, it's really being done, it always comes across as real. It doesn't matter what my title is. I could be guru of words, right? It doesn't matter because we're actually doing artificial intelligence in conversational space. And so when you talk about it by nature, people are like, wow, you're, you're really doing this stuff. It really does sound like an existential, existential question. Is what we're doing real? Yeah, it is. It's, it's, a, it's a blast because, um, God, it's, so many people it isn't artificial intelligence is so broad and so wildly i think almost intentionally misunderstood or missold by by people that that it it is so easy to dupe folks into you know because ai has been around since alan turing's been been doing this and he started in the 1950s and so all this is left over AI from like the 70s and 80s when it really was artificial intelligence at the time. But when you talk about modern artificial intelligence, which is the more temporal, deep learning stuff, that's relatively free, relatively current. And so a lot of companies will pitch AI, but using that, that kind of older 1970s and 80s thing. So it's, it's real, but it's not relevant. And so when you're delving into neural nets and all the stuff that goes with it, man, it, it, it that's the real stuff. That's the real stuff. It's the only way to do what you and I are doing is with very heavy computing power. Right. I, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Did you plan on, you know, your, your career trajectory when you were going to school? Was it uh, someday I want to be guru of words or VP of AI? Was that the long-term plan? No, <laughs> I'm an economist <laughs> by, by nature. So I'm a dismal scientist. No, not at all. Um, it, it, it worked out, um, Gary, in, in a, it's, it, I think all careers are like kind of like, kind of like gambling, right? You sort of put your ball on the roulette table when you graduate from university and, and it lands in some number. For me, it was, it, it landed in, in uh, working for a financial institution. And so I, I went to work for, for originally a finance company and I'm pretty good at math. So I kind of got on the analytical side, got into some loan securitization, which if you remember the 2008 downturn was all that mess that was being invested in. I feel somehow responsible for that, for what I was doing in the nineties, but we didn't know. And so then after that, I kind of went through financial institutions and ended up in a call center because of the behavioral nature of my, I love behaviors. That was a, it's just a, it's a factory of human behavior. And so I just fell in love with it and stayed in call centers, but on the analytics side. And so as the analytics uh, kind of grew, it became obvious that machine learning was the direction that was going to go. And that's how I ended up here. One of the things that you mentioned in that 2008, if you could explain what a derivative is, that would be awesome. <laughs> I, I still, you know, even though I would talk about it in class and I would read about it, I still don't know what debt swaps and derivatives are. I have no I idea. I believe it's just an investment on an investment. It's a bet on a bet. Right. <laughs> so you so, make one bet and then you bet on that bet and then you so, bet on that bet and it just becomes a, a, it's not the actual thing. It's sort of like a thing away from the thing. Almost like buying the air over a property. Right. Which goes back to, is this thing real or not? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But and so that's, that's where I was, you know, when people 
it's funny because being at a business school, we, the economics department here is actually on the business side of the house, not arts and sciences. And in many places, economics is a social science. It's in housed with political science or sociology or things like that because of its, you know, is this real kind of nature, this theoretical nature. And I think that uh, derivatives exemplifies that like nothing else because I don't know how, how, how much more you can get abstract than the air above a thing. Yeah, well, I suppose if at a molecular level, um, <laughs> the space above the air above, yeah. So The space above the air. And then you go from a very abstract trading on things that are th- things of things to being in a call center. How did that switch happen? Um, you know, it, it, it happened because I would absolutely despise the job I had. It's oh, a, there you go. a gambling that you do in your career. I was working at a large financial institution across the parking lot from another large financial institution. And that the second one was Capital One, which is a very cool company back at the time. It was small and just being started. So I sort of applied there, changed my career entirely. I was in, in mortgage securitization and went into call center leadership <laughs> and just wildly different, wildly different. That's it, just, just the, the, the happenstance of life. I don't know that anybody ever said I went to the call center because I hated where I was working and I needed an improvement. <laughs> that's true. It must have been a heck of a job. I, I mean, that's really, that's really saying something when someone says I needed a positive change in my environment. So the call center seemed right. like the best place to go. You know, I went from, uh, from one call center to a debt collector. I didn't, I didn't say that <laughs> when I did that. And call center debt collections and doing the analytics of debt collectors is certainly a very interesting place to work. But and what's that job description look like for the debt collection call center? I mean, what are the, what are the skills and characteristics and the job requirements? Uh, there's really, you know, two that truly, I mean, joking around there, there's really two that matter. Um, it, it's a sales job. So anyone who's a debt collector is, is in a sales job. They're convincing someone usually to pay something that they have no longer allocated into their budget. So they're trying to find the reasons why somebody, Somebody found this and needed this particular obligation at some point and then trying to reconnect to that obligation. But the skills that a human needs are they need to be extremely, you know, sort of receptive and nice. A debt collector can't lose their cool. You never, you'd never get paid if you yell at people. It just doesn't work that way. And, and the second piece is they're closers. They just close. They constantly are closing Not in that sales sense, right? They, it's not about the building rapport and asking questions. Debt collector's primary skill is closing. When, when can you pay this? Do you think you could pay this today? What time today? You know, they're just complete closers. So you always look for people who, who are very nice and very you know, able to connect on the human level because they need to. They need to hear some difficult things every day. And then close. Ask for that sale. Ask for that obligation to get paid. It does sound a lot like the police interrogation stuff I work on. Um, and actually, David Simon, who wrote the, the, the book Homicide and then the TV show Homicide, and then went on to write numerous TV shows like The Wire and others, you know, paraphrases the police interrogation as trying to sell a product that the person has no use for and won't benefit him. <laughs> and that's the job of the police in closing, right? And I'm selling you on this idea that I want you to confess to this crime and voluntarily help me take away your freedom. You know, that, it's interesting because there's a similar mindset there. Not, not that there's anything like interrogation and, and debt collection, but there's a really, as you talk about that, it's just a really interesting uh, mindset. You're connecting to sort of a, at least in collections, you're connecting to the human's responsibility for the obligation. 
Because technically, really, when someone takes out a credit card, they don't have to pay it back. I suppose it's a failure on the adult report card, isn't it? You know, somebody always wants to have a good credit report. They always want to have, you know, sort of, I paid my bills. I was raised to pay my bills. And right. that's what you connect to. I'd expect in an interrogation, you would be connecting that person back to, it's the right thing to do as a human. Well, you do. And it's interesting in terms of, you know, how that works. And it's very similar to personas in some ways is that, you know, at least in the interrogation techniques that I was trained in and I have gotten training in it is to situate the person as a good person who is in a bad situation or circumstance. Not that you're, you're a bad person who is a criminal, but that you're a good person who happened to commit a crime. And that by confessing to what it is that I'm accusing you of doing, it is the road, literally the road to redemption and moving past this mistake at this period in your life. And I, I can only imagine it's very similar in debt collection where it's like, look, you're not a deadbeat. You just are in a situation that where you forgot or you came into difficult circumstances. And by let me help you resolve this difficult period by establishing some kind of journey or path to um, becoming whole again by paying this off. Let me ask you this question then, because that is, I think you're absolutely right. Let me ask you this question. Within the debt collection world, we can continue to draw parallels between these two. Within the debt collection world, a person is trained by their environment. And we're both sort of in that you know, sociological area and what we, we do for both of our, our, our work, right? And, and I think societally, we're trained in how we speak and how we interact. And, and you've taught me a lot of that. But I know in debt collections, we find that people are a product of their environment. When somebody first misses a payment, they go through a, a very simple call. Hey, you missed your payment. And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll mail that in on Friday. Now, if they don't mail it in on Friday, what they learned was to get that debt collector off the phone and make a promise. And so they call them the next Friday and say, oh, you didn't make that payment. They say, yeah, yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll mail it in um, this Friday. And the debt collector goes away again. And this happens over the course of this, this time to when this debt is no longer you know, is charged off and it's no longer valid anymore. And so when, when your debt collector interacts with someone, they're interacting with a series of learned behaviors. And those behaviors manifest in a very few ways. Did you find the same thing within interrogations? Are, are those who have committed the crimes, have they been trained by society and they respond the same way? I think that if we wanted to create two very simple classifications, there are those who might be in interrogation who have no or very little experience with police in that kind of setting. And so they don't necessarily have any kind of strategies for dealing with what is happening at that time. And it's especially true for false confession cases. Then there are those who might have a lot of experience in those kinds of settings because they've had repeated encounters like your person on the phone who has had a, who's had a lot of debt calls and knows how to manage it. And so there, I think we can look at the conversational experience design, right? And, and look at who's driving. Is it, the person who is well-versed in how to handle debt collectors and therefore can manipulate and move the conversation to a conclusion that he or she would prefer? Or is it the person who's making the call or doing the interrogation who's in the position to drive it and uh, therefore can steer it where they want it to go? I never thought about that. That's got a lot of, a lot of implications in conversational artificial intelligence too. In what way? Oh, I've never thought about analyzing using a machine to analyze who's in control, using control language. So that, that obviously would happen in, in phone interactions. You think about calling a cable company or whatever it is. 
and you call and you say, I have a problem with my, my, my screen. It's gone blue again. My screen's gone blue. It's never a good color, is it? I don't know why that color was picked. In, in there probably is a story to that. We should find out and uh, hunt that person down because computers and, and uh, yeah, it's blue. It's always blue. So, so, you know, I've got the blue screen of death again and, and, and the agent then takes control and says, okay, uh, can you make sure your box is plugged in or whatever they say, right? Can you check the, can you push the reset button? I'm going to ping your box, whatever they do in that particular scenario. Um, and so that, that, that would be in control. Or if someone called in and said, listen, I've got this blue screen and I want to cancel my account. And the agent says, well, why do you want to cancel it? I get this darn screen all the time and you people can't seem to fix my cable. I'm going somewhere else. You would never see that cessation of control, perhaps, to the agent. I wonder if that would be readable. I wonder if that's a signal that you could find and say, okay, this is a customer control call, which would have a different possible outcome than a, control, a call where control is given back to the agent. Well, when we think about conversation analysis, and I, you know, in call centers, this is what, you know, I had a great time at the Listen 2019 conference talking with people who are in this space. I think that as, as in your capacity of managing those spaces and listening to a lot of phone calls now, there are those who are very adept at getting control. And I always think about the movie, Glengarry Glen Ross, you talk about closers, right? That famous scene, coffee's for closers, put the coffee down, you know, get them the sign on the line that's dotted. How those people who are good at it, maybe naturally good at it, and maybe just are observationally attuned to what it takes to be good at it. They're able then to structure those conversations in a way to create that outcome. And going back to this design element, it is interactional design. I'm, I'm designing a move here to, to make it more likely that the next thing that will happen will be where I want that person to go. So it's almost like a boxer cutting off a ring in some ways. Interesting. You you think we humans are good at that or do we make bad choices along that path? Cause so many conversations in call centers seem to go awry mainly because the human communication is just so poor that somebody maybe is taking a poor tactic or maybe they don't think about it all. Maybe that you're innocent sitting at the table, just saying whatever comes to their mind. Well, I think that, and this is where with, you know, speech analytics comes in. Are we motivating the right behaviors through the measurements that we're placing on top of, the people working in the centers. And so what's, what are we measuring? What, what are the metrics that we are trying to say matter? Are we measuring how long the phone call is? Are we measuring um, closing? If, a, if we're measuring closing, which is a good measurement for the organization, if the person is feeling pressed by that, are they performing to that metric in the short term versus trying to curate that conversation over a longer period of time because they need to get off the call to get to the next call, they need to close as fast as possible and that's where you get this kind of budding heads in the middle of the ring versus, you know, boxing as the sweet science, moving the person around the ring, taking a longer arc to get them in the position you want them to be in. Nope. I agree. What, what you, I know you studied, uh, I think, Arabic um, store owners in, yep. in, in Detroit. What about societal differences? What about a Filipino agent or an Indian agent trying to have a boxing match with a different style of fighter? Maybe, you know, I don't continue that analogy, you know, sort of a karate fighter and a boxer in the same ring trying to, trying to do the thing. Is that, how, how does, I wonder how that manifests because I found that a societal misunderstanding. So I was on a phone with an agent in, in India and the customer was from Colorado and the customer was just livid. And the agent was doing the best that they could, 
trying to handle this conversation. And, and he's finally he's like, I want to talk to an American. Well, I just happened to be in India sitting next to this kid listening to this phone call. And so he's like, do you want to take it? I got on the phone call and I said, oh, I see you're in Colorado. Hey, how is everything up there? And just saying up there to that individual, immediately he knew, I knew more about him than this agent did. And he calmed down immediately. Absolutely. And so I wonder how in your boxing analogy, the metrics, you're right. If you, if you jam, jam down handle time, you're going to get exactly what you expect. Either unintended transfers to keep handle time lower and agent just ending phone calls rapidly to get them to get that metric. But if you, if you relax handle time, I wonder if it doesn't, how do you handle the societal differences? The, the things that are just difficult between humans. Your example of that, what I would call interactional alignment, right? You're, you're moving into this space where we're now co-locating each other as having a shared knowledge base of up there, right? Well, up, what does up there mean? Or if I said, how are things out there in the mountains? When, mm-hmm. I, when I was talking to a person recently, it was, I was having difficulty with some, you know, getting into my bank account because I lost the password. And I had a person in India. And one of the comments I made, one of the jokes I often make is, um, I'm in New England, which is, you know, we're a lot like you. In India, we didn't like the British and kicked them out. And that always gets a laugh from the Indians because, you know, I le- I, we didn't like the British and had a revolution. You didn't like the British and kicked them out. And so we're on the same page there, not liking the British. And effectively, effectively what I'm doing is I'm, I'm positioning, I'm reducing social distance in the interaction by using a conversational resource to do this, this almost like a likeness bias and, that you're creating with you yeah and you know it, it, uh, one of the things we know about trust for instance is that trust is much easier to achieve when we're working with someone who we perceive as being from the same group that we are and so i don't need to know anything about you in terms of you know what is rick all about but if we can situate around a shared thing that's going to facilitate our ability to work together probably not you know, not probably the reason why I should say that when we first meet people, we kind of go through resources for understanding who they are so we can create opportunities for engagement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, to your point, I used to know a call center agent worked for me who knew one thing about every knew a single fact about one college in every state. And so when he would get on the phone call, I'd be like, Oh, I see you're from Tennessee. How about those volunteers? And they'd say, Oh, I don't like Tennessee volunteers. And then it didn't matter what the answer was. It had no bearing on the call. He's like, Oh yeah, I'll tell you what, I'm not a fan either or whatever he'd say. Right. And he's, he said, it swore it worked. So to your point, having a a modicum of knowledge about the person you're speaking to a thing to connect on that's unique probably goes a very long way in giving you runway on that conversation to make mistakes and, and take wrong strategies. And did you do, when you were managing call centers involved in them, did, would you do trainings about this or would you encourage people to do that? Because it seems like a pretty tacit skill that someone might possess to have this strategy. I know something about colleges throughout the country, or I, I know the weather, wherever people are, or whatever it is. is. Was this an intentional strategy that you would train people on? Or is this just something that certain people were good at and identified as a good, a good approach to use with callers? I think the answer is yes. Um, some people are good at it. They naturally gravitate to it. Others come in and it's a transactional job. They're not looking at anything other than just to make it to five o'clock every day on the end of a phone. But in, in, in like in India, for example, we did, we had to build context with, we, you know, this is a debt collector who was collecting um, a variety of, of revolving debt. 
And some of those clients were, for example, in the home improvement business. One of them had a bunch of mall stores as their, they did the financing for a bunch of stores that you'd find in a, in a shopping mall. And so we had to go through and teach Indians kind of what lumber was, because it isn't a concept <laughs> they have there. And what is a deck? They, they just don't even know. Like a deck, what would you do with that? What is a deck? Where does it go? I mean, just wood is not used in India in that way. And we would also have to go through and, and you know, when you were calling on a, on a, a particular retailer, maybe that sold women's undergarments, that was very passe in India for a gentleman to speak about that. And so we had to say, it's okay to talk to an American woman about but don't ask her husband, what did you buy at this particular store? Because he didn't probably get anything there. And so we did have to do that level of context, but we never got much deeper than that because it just is such a great effort to impart. And we built wikis to do all this stuff so that they could access the knowledge at any time. But it felt like a vain attempt to solve for something that we never really, we got better. I mean, put it that way. Not great. Uh, it's one of the things I do wonder about, and I wrote a blog about this that was inspired by the Listen 2019 conference was, you know, what is the evolution of the call center employee role where early iterations or early beliefs of that job was that it's a person who is not terribly skilled. We're going to throw an expert system up there that you're going to go through the menu and we can throw everybody in the chair. It doesn't matter as long as they can use a system to what you're describing is actually knowledge work and skill-based almost craftsmanship where I'm, I'm crafting and constructing the conversation based on cultural knowledge for a particular kind of outcome. I mean, have you seen the role or the perception of what the call center worker is evolve over time? Yeah, it has to, it, it has. Yes, absolutely. And originally it was when call centers were done and you think of back to the old switchboard operators or the, the initial call center agent, was someone who just merely took one wire out of a hole and shoved it in another one so you could talk to someone, right? After that, then I think there was a call center in Minnesota that just just dialed from a phone book and they took phone calls. I mean, it's just very simplistic stuff. I, I think as automation has become more prevalent, as we've become comfortable with automation, self-driving phone calls, as it were, or you know, chatbots and things like that, it, the only calls that are left are richer interactions. No longer is it, can I have the number on my account? It's 435, thank you very much, goodbye. Those, those calls are very few and far between. Most everything now is a much more complex. I tried to do this on the website and I couldn't kind of a interaction. So I think absolutely, you're, 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 you're completely right that this is evolving into, um, when you speak to someone on the phone, they, they have a very complex job in front of them. And, and it isn't made any easier by the, customer relationship management systems inside these organizations that are not always journey management built, right? They, they just know what they know and they don't talk to all the other things. How can you, how many times have you gone to an IVR and had to repeat yourself to the agent? Right. right. It's, it's frustrating. So I think it is knowledge work. Absolutely. That that's about all that's left in call centers. I've been reading a book recently. It's called on the clock. And I don't know if you're familiar with the book nickel and dimed, but it's similar in that this, this young lady, who's a journalist who loses their journalism job, takes like three different jobs. One of them is at the Amazon Fulfillment Center. One of them is in a call center and can't quite remember the third because I'm not to that chapter yet. But the call center job, when she's describing being trained on it, one of the things I didn't appreciate about it because I've not observed call center workers working 
is, for instance, as you mentioned, handling the number of screens at the same time and mm -hmm. trying to get into different systems to answer questions or, or to fulfill other parts of the job. And as she was describing for this one company, the job really was about upselling um, services. I think one of the accounts was like Dish or something like that, Dish Network, upselling. And she was performing to that thing rather than trying to help with solve the problem while handling literally five or six or seven different screens at the same time. And is that, would that be uncommon or is that a common kind of That's, that's exceptionally common. It, I think the misconception is uh, we think a call center's agent job, the job is to talk on the phone while it should be a hundred percent of their job because we think of them as an agent in a place where people call by their very title. Um, that's not how it manifests in any way. It, it is, uh, it, it's there's several things an agent is managing. They're managing KPIs, to your point. Uh, these are things that can get them fired. So the most draconian possible solutions, right? If you do that one more time, you don't work here anymore. Well, what's the one thing you're never going to do again or even come close to, right? Uh, you're, you're never going to come close to, to breaching that trust. So that, that, that one's out. So if the customer needs anything in that realm, you're not going to do it. The second one is, to your point, this sort of systemic management um, when I worked at Capital One, they, they've changed this. When I worked there, we had seven systems to manage a customer. Wow. Um, and it's, interestingly, they were named after the seven dwarves. So we <laughs> had a system called Grumpy, which was fantastic. Uh, so you had, to, you had to navigate all these systems. And, and, and then that's still common, it, very common. And think about the cost to convert a system. It, it, cost, it cost you up to $100 million in a big financial institution to switch from one CRM to another. And and you know the CEO always has to ask, what do I get out of that hundred million dollars? It's working today. Is it going to work that much better tomorrow? So you've got got this conversion thing you have to go through. And then the final piece of an agent's life that makes makes the, their world extremely uh, uh, extremely complex is they don't always have the answers to the questions they're looking for, and so they're really more sort of organizationally managing. Because what happens is in organizations. The good idea fairy comes to play. This is so very common. I, I read about this a long time ago in a book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. The good idea fairy is when people say, I got a good idea. And someone at a, at a round table in home office decides that an agent now needs to say the word banana on a phone call. And so <laughs> pull it out. Hey, everyone say banana. Don't say monkey. Right. We all say banana. And the agent's just trying to manage that. And tomorrow there's another good idea. Right. Oh, no. What we're going to need to do is get email addresses now. Hey, everyone get email addresses. And, and so they've got all these out. You can get fired for doing this. Our systems don't meet your needs. And oh, by the way, it's, we're going to say monkey and get email addresses today, everyone. Go to your, go to your job. Oh, and make customers way. happy. Yeah. And, and at the same time, just make sure you upsell on new That's systems. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, and the old system more, doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. Sell more vacations or whatever it is that you have to sell at the end of that phone call. After you tell them you can, yeah, the blue screen's not going away. I'd like you to get them some showtime, right? It's a really right. good job that this agent has. And so... You know, it really what we're talking about, though, isn't the agent, is it? This is all about the layers above them. What technically you would think would be a support layer for an agent, but it's not. It's more of a demand layer. But the supervisor up to the leader of that operation or marketing or wherever it falls is making a series of decisions not informed by what's going on. Speech analytics being the key product that we use to tell them that stuff, right? Here's what you're doing to your customers and your agents. And that's so fascinating. I want to, I want to, it's a good segue. I want to talk about that, but it's, it reminded me when I was working with a company, a client on redesigning their call center training, I would listen to the phone calls. I would hear a customer call in, have a problem, it not be fully resolved at the end of the call. 
And then the call center person have to say, is there anything else I can help you with today? And, you know, having a PhD, that didn't make much sense to me because you didn't help with the first thing. And so I asked the call center agents who were, you know, the floor supervisors who were also handling the phone calls. Why are you saying, is there anything else I can help you with today when you didn't help them with the first thing they called in? Because that's going to make someone pretty aggravated. And they said, oh, yeah, we know, um, but it's something we have to say. We have to say it, yeah. yeah. But the, the kicker is, and getting to the point you just made, they could have told their managers and likely did tell their managers who aren't on the phones, this is not working. But they're not listening to the workers because they're just the workers after all. But what you're telling me and you know, getting to call miner and how, well, how you got there and what call miner does, they will listen to the analytics if it's numerical. Yeah, you, you're exactly right. And this when you're measuring, for example, sentiment with artificial intelligence is, is built to do that exactly right. What are the things in this interaction that are being that are flagging on that customer channel as angry or frustrated or, or you know, dissatisfying? Find those things or even using using our system to find to find areas where uh, a customer is extremely frustrated, you know, sort of root causes immediate. What is it that's doing that? And we did a big research engagement with a, a large client. And as we went through it, the most frustrating thing on their phone calls was when they bundled, as a cable provider, when they bundled their cable with their internet. And so the question is sort of what, what is happening? Why, why would that be so frustrating? Is their internet bad? You know, what, what, what is it about that? And it turns out the internet that they offered was purchased was, you know, cable companies buy each other all the time by, by smaller cable providers. And when you do that, there's a time period where you're transitioning out of one old cable company system into this new grand cable company system of the master that just bought the kind of the slave company. And when they were doing this, the billing was so confusing on the bundle that it really, really made people angry. <laughs> agent has no, it had nothing to do with this, right? The agent's just right. saying, oh, great, I got a bundle on that again. And they like, well, wait a minute, I had three months free on my Showtime, and then I had two months free on my internet. And then my, my, my internet's showing that I'm not having the two months. And they're like, what in the world are they, when you listen to calls or your speech analytics, who kept popping up these bewildered moments. And it turns out it was merely a billing issue that they could solve. And we told them, they said, yeah, it's, we didn't know. And now we can go begin to solve for that. So anything in, in an interaction like that, the, the difficulty to your point is, a single point is not a trend. And, and so when you get anecdotal evidence from an agent, probably not the most trusted ally of the organization, right? I don't know why, but they don't seem to be. You know, people trust agents individually, but they don't trust them in a group at all for some bizarre reason. I, I, I trust Sally the agent, but not those agents. Yeah, not, not Sally's. Yeah, so um, the, when, when you get this single data point, it, it, it just, it's just noise, right? But when you use speech analytics, you can say that single data point, somebody just said it frustrates people when we ask anything else I can help you with today. And so I want to go look for the prevalence of dissatisfaction at the end of phone calls, because I know every phone call has that, because I'll fire you if you don't say it. And so it, at the end of every phone call, I, I'm going to go look for dissatisfaction. And you can begin to ferret it out and say, wait a minute, at any time where there was dissatisfaction because the problem wasn't solved, the reason for call was blue screen, you didn't solve that. And then you ask if there's anything else I can do for you. Right. Um, you know, it, that's absolutely how our system is built to find that and then begin saying, wait a minute, maybe we should, we should figure out how to solve that problem or make a much more promising statement at the end as opposed to a wide open, well, okay, that didn't work. Anything else I can not do for you today? <laughs> We've been talking around Call Miner, and I, I'd like to have you explain it because I see on your LinkedIn page, 
you describe it as developing sh machines to take over the world. Are these going to be benevolent overlords or is this going to be the Terminator kind of overlords that is going to subjugate us or even the, um, the one with uh, Keanu Reeves, what is it? The matrix ones where it's going to be plugged in and yeah, you're just put plugged to sleep. In my machines. which I'm not, I'm not opposed to by the way, because actually if I could just be as put asleep and imagine a positive life, I might like that better. So I'm, I'm on, I'm non, I'm, I'm, you can convince me for the matrix ver dystopia. I don't know that I could do the Terminator dystopia. So you know, I, I'm, but if, if I was to create a robot to take over the world, sadly, it would just talk you to death. It's, it's not, not very exciting. It wouldn't, wouldn't probably brandish a, a weapon of any sort. It would just be sort of banal, but um, the, the machines aren't taken over yet. Matter of fact, we're, we're so far from anything that would look like that. It would be unbelievable. I'm more worried about the humans who use the machines doing disingenuous things with them because it's certainly available for people to do. But, um, you know, as, as we think about in the call center world, the space that we're researching heavily is what we call algorithmic nudging, which is using the, so if you think about a machine is it, an algorithm is nothing more than when it's first created, it's just an, an infant. It doesn't know anything at all. And so we use a large amount of data to train our, it's called machine learning, right? So you train artificial intelligence on large amounts of data, the same way you would train a human to speak, you have to start with one word. A baby has just a few, and then you work your way all the way up to 40, 50,000 words in someone's life. So you do that sort of one word at a time. Machines do it with massive amounts of data. And so as we train these things, what we've noticed is machines or, or algorithms can notice trends better than humans can. Because our, our capacity, our human capacity is one at a time. Whereas um, in, within machine learning, it's sort of everything all at once. And we have, to, we have to tell it what to look for, right? And, and so once we've described what we would like to have it look for, um, it, it'll go find it every single time with a, a percentage of accuracy. What it can begin to do is offer that, the human, the agent or the customer, they can offer that person more knowledge than they had before. Uh, you know, it's, oh, wait a minute, you're getting a lot of mentions today that the, about web and email and internet, uh, the systems might be down. As you can nudge the agent and say the systems are down here much more quickly. It's a simplistic example. Usually it's much more along the lines of when people say these things, here's what they really mean. But I think that's that's when you think about robots taking over, I would like to have I'd like to have the benevolent robot sitting beside the agent and beside the customer in a three-way conversation where either it's heard or not heard, but it's certainly there presenting choices that are better than uh, the lack of knowledge that people have today. And also the benevolent manager, because you know, based on what we were describing, you know, a few minutes ago, this idea of that management layer that is either going to use the technology to empower the agent to identify these trends and make decisions on how they then interact with the caller, or to closely surveil the agents and try to dictate what they do by saying things like banana you know, or today's the word of the day is like monkey. It's like, you'll, you know, Groucho Marx, um, mm -hmm. you know, say, say the secret word kind of thing. And that, that was one of the really interesting things about the call minor conference was this element of the, the ones that were speaking on the stage were really driving home this. It's not just customer experience that we're talking about. It really is about employer employee experience as well. Yeah, it is. And, and the use cases with our system, you find those at that, that list in the conference, the use cases are so wildly varied. Right. So it really were. Varied. It always astounds me when I, when I come across, I, when I was a client of Call Miner before I came to work here, but as I, I, I used it very specifically for what I needed within my organization. 
and every organization seems to have its its own use cases and some of them are just fantastic and the things they're doing with it just absolutely you know kind of is it, can you do that sort of a thing people are very clever when it comes to use the system I and mean, to your point yeah many times it's measuring uh this interaction using uh empirical means not, not the anecdotes that have been in the past and so when you're in your new job in your new role when you when you're first meeting people at a party or someplace social and they say what do you do for a living and you say well, i'm a guru of words or i'm a vp of ai how do you describe to them what call miner does and how it fits into anything relatable to their world. Wow, it depends on the social situation. <laughs> well, think, think about, well, yeah, I know it's Florida, but. <laughs> so people so just go, cool. Yeah, well, like, right on. You know? <laughs> exactly, I'm the VP of artificial intelligence. Cool, wow, that's cool. That, you, must, you must be smart. That's usually what people say. And I say, right. no, not at all. Actually, I have smart people that work for me. I'm just a lucky person. But, <laughs> You know, when you describe what, sort of what, what, what I do is uh, we, use, we use machines to study humans and, and at, a, at a genetic level of conversation. So and that's why, you know, sort of you and I met, right, is, right. is um, there is, so I, I don't know quite how to describe this. So I, I tell people that I work for a speech analytics company, you know, all those phone calls you make where they say, this call may be monitored or recorded. Well, they take that recording and right. they ingest it through our system and our software then tells them what's inside of there. So no longer is a recording just something on a shelf like a book. It's a fully understood and interrogatable uh, piece, piece of work. Almost, you know, so imagine like a, a Googling of a phone call sort of an right. environment. And that's exactly what we do. And my job, of course, is to invest as much, uh, machine learning into that particular product continue to grow its its ability to be proactive and provide insights to the users of that system uh, or in a real-time sense to the agents who are actually on the phone call uh, without human intervention uh, it's it's just difficult to have a human listen to every phone call but what if machines had already listened to them and said these are areas of interest these are places to pay attention or even we recommend an action such as this in order to not have the reaction that you were looking for i don't know what it is uh, product churn or, or employee satisfaction or whatever that metric is. But that's technically, you know, anyway, that, that's the, maybe that's the Bostonian answer to that when I'm, when I'm at those MIT parties that I go to all the time. I, I, I'm not invited to those parties, Rick. Um, yeah, me either. I, me either. I've I was been just hoping you were and you could get me in. It was, it was my No, dream. no. I, I, I was actually at the Harvard Club once uh, and I was, that was the last time. So I don't know if I did something to not be invited back. It's possible. I don't recall, which might be part of the problem. But I, I'm, not, I'm not really in those circles, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I actually went to a club in Harvard once. So there you go. But it wasn't Harvard Club. I had to pay. You know, it was a bartender. It was nice. But right. yeah, so, so you know, that, that, that's, that's the thought. But something I want to ask you about, something I've been contemplating, is when you, you think about what I just mentioned about each client has its own individual use case. And so if that's the case, and, and, and having worked with, you know, we have 300 some clients here, and, and having worked with all those clients and all that, that data and, and each one is unique as much as if we say a corporation is a human is an individual, right? That's how we think of corporations. They're, they're thought of, you know, in a business sense as individuals. I think it's actually true. Each, each corporation, even if you look at one industry airlines, or if you look at a cable company, or if you look at healthcare, or you look at financial services, they're all different. Each one of them is its own different environment, systemically right. agent wise, what they handle, the product names, anything within there. Right. And, and even though we have clients that do exactly the same thing, I, I don't know, Medicare sales, they, they do that, they approach it so completely differently. And so one of the questions we're beginning to ask is, what's the commonality right. between these businesses? And the one thing I come back to is, it's us, we the humans. 
And so if we can, and what we're building now is, as opposed to looking at how would a healthcare client get more sales, you look at what are the, who are the humans within this environment and what are they reacting to? Because that's a common thread. Right. Just to go tell one healthcare client, oh, say Medicare twice and then, and then get an ID card. That sounds very corporate as opposed to people who have a doctor in network and you don't have a doctor, that doctor in your new network for this Medicare sale are going to need reassurance that they can find a doctor that will meet their needs. Very different approach than, than the other. What are your thoughts on that from your, your perspective? Well, I, I, I would agree. And I think one of the things when I was teaching a course last summer on employee experience, one of my big, oddly enough, it was an MBA program. I would tell people that the management is really the wrong word for what we need in the workplace of today and tomorrow. It's not managers because managers, you know, dictates inherent in the word is, you know, managing what it is people do and often controlling. What you're really talking about is facilitation and enablement, right? I, I'm an enabler. I'm a facilitator, you know, and how do I construct an environment, physical, cultural, technological, that will facilitate, enable the people that are working, often who are more knowledgeable about their jobs than, the, than I am, to accomplish those goals. And that's where the, you know, the technology you're describing both becomes uh, a tool to be used and an enabler um, to provide direction, right? And so going back to something you said, you tell the machine what to look for. Well, who's, you know, who's telling the machine what to look for? Well, it could be the person on the call who says, oh, you know, I, I've noticed this thing. Is there a way that I can either give that to the analyst, the interaction analyst to go look for that and see if what comes up? Or can I do it from my own machine at my desk and see what comes up? Right, 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 right. Does that, per does yeah, that person I, have, that, have that capability? Yeah, it does. I, I love the idea. You're talking about within an interaction flagging something and saying this is a, this is an item of interest and item i'd like to to focus on and then using algorithms to focus on that with what's around it how it's constructed what the the flow of that is the sequences if it follows common sequences like i said a phone calls listened to by an, a machine every single call is listened to by a machine and it knows a lot of what's happening in there it can begin to point to similarities in other areas we we have the ability using um, one of the terms we use in artificial intelligence is features a feature is sort of metadata. It's taking several pieces of data and creating a common use for them together. And that creates a feature. We engineer them, very, very complex ones, but we engineer them. One of the things we're able to do is use the behaviors of people on phone calls to find common areas. So right. uh, picking that out, to your point, a flag of this happened, we can look at not only the words and the sounds, but also the behaviors around it, whether pauses, whether cadence switches, was there the, uh, the an interruption nearby? That that sort of sort of pieces. And that's what we do in conversation analysis. Is it often starts with. I mean, we might have like you. We might have a a body of work. We do have a body of work of patterns that we know exist uh, often that are ubiquitous across conversations or relative to certain conversations that happen in kind of different domains doctor-patient interaction versus a call center interaction versus an educational interaction versus a parent-child interaction or police interrogation interaction. So we have that body of work that we kind of can rely on to start, to start noticing things, but then we also leave room for other kinds of what I would call noticings. Oh, 
look at that. I didn't notice that before. What's going on there? Is that a one-off or is that a repeated instance? And, and what your technology provides the ability to do is if I'm, if I'm analyzing a hundred calls or a hundred interactions and it's not till the 57th interaction that I notice something, do I have to go back and reanalyze the first 56 or can I put that into some, a, 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 a engine like a call miner engine or a call miner engine or the call miner engine? Or do I, then can I analyze those other ones with that noticing? So it allows for more rapid analysis based on emergent expertise or awareness. Yeah, I, 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 it's a question, I think, right? Um, I think it's a statement, Rick. I think, I think we know. Okay, yeah, I, 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 then I agree. I concur. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah, trend analysis, if, if you find a single of a thing, you can't draw a line through it, right? You can, it's not true. You can draw an infinite number of lines through a single data point. So if you, if you do realize something, you can. We actually, with our, with our artificial intelligence, we can create almost a call playlist based on that thing. And so you found this thing, here are other calls that have a very similar thing in it to refine your analysis. And then to your point, I'd like to look at that every other time it happens it, now and into the future. And I'd like to go back three weeks a month and see if it ever happened before. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely powerful, both for, for both of us, right? As opposed, when, because we don't notice things. We humans don't notice things until we see several of them usually. They're quirky, but we'll oftentimes let them go. And, I, I and I really do think that that's where one of the things that really is interest, impressive to me was, even though at first blush, I mean, we've been talking about call centers and whatnot at, from the, you know, as a customer element, customer experience, but it's also employee experience because not only can you hear when the caller is getting frustrated or happy, you can also hear it on the employee side. And this is where I think that with this as a tool to help enable or facilitate empower people who are manning those calls to make more intelligent decisions, uh, you know, using like call minor predict, which is, you know, I know the product that I believe is coming out um, to help give some conversational cues or as well, allow the person on the phone to actually become an analyst in real time to identify those patterns and traits. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, it's built to do that. Absolutely built to do that. So when you when you're selling these things, you're talking to clients who have problems. Like, what's the, you know, what what are the biggest challenges they're facing, and how is it that you know, and what the work that you all do with this experience design, both customer and employee. How do you how what are they looking for, and how do you position it? That's a good question. Probably other agents than I can answer that better. I don't do much sales of what what we do. I think, um, you know, if if a person's never had any tool like this before uh it's a relatively simple conversation is you know sort of that you know so you have one million hours of call recordings what are you doing with them and and are, they, are those valuable to you or are they just a bunch of terabytes of data sitting sitting in your data stores um what if you knew every word that was ever said and and, and you could do something with it i think that's that's kind of the basic pitch right is it gives you the ability to achieve returns on investment or compliance uh, concerns that you'd never contemplated because right now your voice of the customer is sitting on a shelf that no one, you, you right. can go listen to them, <laughs> right? But I'd like yeah. to hire a million people to listen to a million phone calls. It's sort of, it's almost Kafka-esque in its ridiculous nature there. So 
you know, I, I think that that's, that's the easy one. If someone doesn't have it, it's just visibility in the data. Sadly, it becomes like Cerebro at the beginning. You put that thing on your head and you can see all the aliens in the world. And, <laughs> and then it's, it's, it, it almost drives, drives the doctor to say, you're crazy to see that stuff. But assuming, you know, obviously our system organizes it in a way that makes it much more, uh, much more easier. But there's certainly a lot of rabbit holes to get into when you start listening to interactions. But if someone is a user of the speech analytic system, then it's a much, much more elegant conversation. They already have a, we, we do switch a lot of people out of other speech analytics solutions because uh, of the robust nature of the thing that, that we built. And so, uh, you know, when people are switching over, it's usually about power and speed. They already understand the Cerebro concept and they've found a bunch of the things that interest them. Now they want power and speed to find more. And so system flexibility becomes the, the software's greatest strength. An analyst, like to your point, if you would like to find something, once you find it, you can you can find it forever, and and it's just very very flexible. It's near infinite. I mean, as much as a human can conceive infinity, but you, there's no limit on the amount of insights you can find, mark, and keep. So it's it's pretty powerful there. And then the piece that I get really interested in is if they have a data science team, bringing our research team. We have a large data science team here, as you're aware. Bringing that large research team in into play with a client who has another data science team is just absolutely amazing because we speak the same language and we do complementary work. You know, I, I, it makes me think of a few things. One of which is this idea of what do patterns mean? And one of the questions people often ask with this kind of technology is, well, what's, is it a replacement for people? And I think what you're describing, and this also goes back to the management piece, what you're describing is we still have to make sense of what the data means. We still have to under, you know, even though we see these patterns, that's fine. But like, what's the, what's the reason for these patterns existing in the first place? And what do we do about it? And that's where I think, and you can tell me if I'm wrong or not, but that's where I think that that's the evolution of work through the technology is opening up those opportunities for investigation that otherwise you wouldn't get right. because yeah. of the fact that, and this always killed me, when I was talking with clients or, you know, talking with people doing interviews for research, they, they would always say, you know, I really wish, I wish there was a way to capture the voice of the customer to which I would say, do you record your phone calls? And there we would go. Well, yeah. I said, you know, so you literally have the voice of the customer. <laughs> and, and you have it recorded and you, you, you can have it. to it, right? Yeah. And you and then, but you're trying to figure out what kind of, what number scale to use, but you have the voice of the customer, but they didn't know what to do with it. Right. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. I, something that always resonates with me, because I, I hear this a lot. Matter of fact, about a year and a half ago, there, there was this, I did a bunch of interviews with this concept of, is the call center agent going away? Right. And, and I, I almost heard, maybe it's because I'm a call center dog, right? I come out of this environment. I believe in these things in some weird sort of almost you know, religious way, I believe call centers are necessary. But, but one of the things I, I say to clients a lot of times is like, you know, we, we want to replace all of our agents with bots. Sure. Bots, bots are the key to the world. I'm like, right. so uh, I just want to restate what you said. Just, I want to restate that client. I want to restate that with, you never ever want to hear your customer. Is that correct? Like your ideal world, you'll never ever speak to the people who buy your product. That That's your, that's your in state. Is that correct? And they're like, well, well, no, I mean, well, it's exactly what it sounded like. I think a certain, even if you were to perfect an engagement with, with a robotic individual, let's suppose we created some sentient agent that was able to do this work, I would argue that there is still a necess necessary, a need to listen to the customer or even reserve a 
portion of those calls to interact with people who actually are people. And, and so, you know, with the future of the call center for me is not just resolving customers' issues. It is the place where you can hear the new ideas and the bad decisions you've made as an organization and rectify them and improve on them. It's the only channel left, right? It's sort of like, you know, you think about the Amazon model, right? You, you sure you can leave a review. You trust them. I don't know. I mean, a review could be written by a robot, right? Sure. But there is no storefront you walk in. You just go click on stuff. And so, so Amazon uses algorithms to recommend and find gaps in their product, but there's no voice there. There's no voice at all. There is no human interaction with that, right? It's sort of the vending machine. The vending machine doesn't know if you like Pepsi or not. Maybe you push the wrong button and you got a Pepsi out and you really wanted a diet Pepsi. And I think that one of the points, which is really key to what you just said, is allowing people to be people and not just corporal you know, bots. I mean, the old expert system model of just read the screen, go through the, you know, is the computer on? you know, that mm -hmm. kind of thing where people get intensely frustrated because it's not a, it's not a interaction in which is what we would call in conversation analysis, recipient design. We're not designing the turns of talk with the other person in mind. We're doing it with the, the, the computer screen in mind or the metrics in mind, right, but it's right, not right. the person in mind. So the recipient design is all off. And so the, the greater that the, to the greater extent we can allow people to interact with other people as people and not just as customers and workers or representatives to have those, you know, Tennessee football conversations, the better the interactions are going to be. They'd have to be, wouldn't they? You would like to. to think so. I mean, you know, we know how it looks otherwise because we have that experience otherwise. We've gone through the, we can just put people in the seats to extract their expertise, put it into a system, have them running through uh, lines of questions and then come out with a positive outcome. Well, anybody who's ever tried to use help in Microsoft Word, <laughs> right? Or that little paperclip thing that bounced around that's no oh. longer there knows. I mean, the dog was cute and you can pet it. And that was nice when it would pop up on. Oh, you're talking about Clippy. 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 And oh, the dog. That's going right? old school on that there. Well, I've never heard of Clippy. I'm old. And that's what happens. <laughs> this is why I, I, I have the same exact, same uh, reaction when I do this with my students. They just kind of look at me blankly. I mean, you had like, I know we'll, we'll make help. We'll make the help screen. And for the kids listening to this, go look it up. We'll make the help screen customizable with an icon that's interactive that if you could put your mouse over the dog, it would wag its tail. But it still couldn't help you with the thing you wanted help with. <laughs> but did it, ask you, did it ask you at the end of the conversation, you have any more questions? Right. <laughs> so I, help you with? <laughs> yeah, then and you just kind of throw up your hands and just, you know, right. drink. And so and I then, do think that there's a direct line between Clippy and the increasing rates of alcoholism. In the United States. <laughs> and political discontent. Let's just throw it all in there. Let's make a whole as, world responsible for that. Well, at a certain point, you talk about finding patterns. I mean, I think that there's a definite pattern in there. And so can we, can, you know, can call minor technology um, with the right management philosophy? And this is where I think that from what I learned and what you're describing, it becomes mission driven becomes an important point that we're not just selling solution that the customers want. We're selling a mission that the and products that the customer needs whether they know it or not. And it takes a, it takes a mindset change because what you said resonated with me. We used to coach when I was doing um, 
you know, in a past life. We used, we used to coach, you know, what was the desired outcome from that interaction on the agent side? And so that was a, a bit of a way we would go at it. What did you want to get out of that call, for example? And they say, oh, I wanted to, I wanted to collect a million dollars or whatever it is. I wanted, I wanted that person to pay their bill or I want to sell that, you know, that, that new vacation plan or whatever it was. And we would go into that coaching scenario and we'd say, what was the desired outcome? And they'd say, you know, I want to sell the vacation plan. I'd say, the actions you took in that interaction, did they lead you further from it or closer <laughs> to it? Right. Right. And so you kind of go through and listen to it and you say, well, you, you, you sort of blew up at the customer there and called them a bad word. Um, is that taking you further from or closer to the goal that you had stated at the beginning of the phone call? So I think a part of this, and that's where algorithms, they just know the desired outcome, can keep people on track as well. Using call miner and using, using artificial intelligence in a system can, can also, you know, because we, we all lose our cool. We all, we, all, we all drift. It's the nature of what we do. But machines don't drift in that way. They, they, they will stay true to whatever you ask them to do. And so it, that third party in the call can say, hey, now, hold on. You're you're kind of kind of losing it. It's not going to take you where you need to be, and and perhaps help to your point. You know that mission statement of that one interaction that a person wanted the blue screen to go away, and the agent wanted to sell them the vacation plan at the end. And the confluence of those is fixing the blue screen in a way that made the person happy with the product and more likely to buy the vacation. And so, what do you think? You know, one last question here about this. What do you think? Like one year from now, what would our conversation sound like in terms of what advances or what evolutionary next steps do you think are going to happen between 2000 and what is this 20 and 2021 yeah yeah um you, i i can only answer it from the perspective of sort of research at a speech and call mine in the speech analytics world um the difficulty in a conversation is not the big stuff gary it's 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 the little things that happen and yet finding the little things that happen is exceedingly hard so if you want to know if someone said hello or goodbye, that's relatively easy. I might recommend that we could write some code for that within the next 20 seconds, and it'll tell you whether or not someone said hello or goodbye. It's probably going to occur at the beginning, at the end of a phone call, and if there's a transfer, perhaps in the middle. But at least I know that it's going to happen. I can, I can predict it. We had a client recently say to us, I want to, you know, I, I've done a lot of compliance work. I've done a lot of ROI work, but I want to know insights out of my phone calls. Well, insights have no parameters or bounds to them, do they? They occur where they occur. Things are said, things are interesting facts are, are said within interactions by agents and by customers, but they don't follow any set pattern. And we are, uh, I think within between 2021, where our research is taking us the ability to present the small insights, the individual moments of DNA of an interaction that are of interest, not just the big Oh, I want to find out how we ask for credit cards uh, more along the lines of, I would like to know something very discreet within this interaction that only maybe occurs, you know, 10 out of a million times, but it's valuable to me. It's insightful to me. And that's, that's where machine learning, I think will take us in that, that sort of spanning of those two years by, by the end of this year, we should have the ability to begin presenting very robust insights that are very small in nature moments that matter, but don't happen a lot. Well, that sounds to me is now you're starting to speak my language, looking for the outliers. And one of the things that we talk about with qualitative research a lot versus quantitative is that quantitative research often is predicated on finding those larger patterns, those, those you know, the trend line or the regression line, how things cluster around it, where the qualitative person might go, hmm, what's happening over there? <laughs> what, what's that all about? And those are those like those 
windows or doors like Alice in the Looking Glass, right? It, you kind of go down that rabbit hole and discover this whole new world from right. that, from those other instances of things where now that we know where the regression line and how things cluster around that are, now it frees us up to start looking at these other areas too. I guess then I'll amend my previous answer to the dystopian question. Maybe I'm building a professor to teach at private universities in Boston. Well, you wouldn't be the first one to be thinking about that. And, <laughs> and from what I hear from my students, you could just routinize um, <laughs> almost like a Chuck E. Cheese. Remember yeah. my Max Headroom. I always would see you more as a Max Headroom than a Chuck E. Cheese. Well, yeah, either way, I think it's just like, you know, what day is it on the syllabus? Well, it's day five. This <laughs> is the lecture. And just plug that baby in there. And, uh, and then we can have uh, robotic eyes that glow red when the students don't perform well or glow green when <laughs> students are, you know, it's like it's more of a sentiment analysis. So that that's students right. are performing to the, to the eye glow. The gamification motivated. of education. Absolutely. We need, we need more robotics and technology in the classroom for sure because it's, it's, it's been so helpful so far. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Rick, for talking. No, great to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Rick Britt, Vice President of Artificial Intelligence at Callminer, for taking some time to chat about his own professional journey and customer and employee experience, the evolution of Callminer, and the integration of sentiment analysis and speech analytics in customer contacts. Make sure you check out all the information about Callminer and their products at their website and follow Rick on LinkedIn and Twitter. And thanks to everyone who has subscribed to Experience by Design podcast. You can make it a part of your New Year's resolution to subscribe to the podcast as a component of doing nice things for yourself. And I think we should all resolve to do nice things for ourselves in the new year. You can do so by going to experiencexdesign, all one word, dot com and just giving us your email. You can also find past shows on our website there as well. Feel free to subscribe through Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other place that you typically get podcasts. If you can't find us on that location or at that location, you can contact us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com and let us know. You can also let us know about any ideas for future podcasts. We love hearing from everybody what they like about the show, what they would like to see on the show in future episodes. So make sure you reach out to us there. You can also resolve to support the podcast through our glow.fm link, which you can also find on our website. It would definitely be helpful in helping us defray some of the costs of bringing you this content. Once again, Happy New Year, folks. May whatever new year you celebrate be full of great and new experiences. Bye.